Okay, hey, let's get ready to jump into God's Word. So, for the last year, you guys are like, Caleb has been like almost two. All right, last year-ish, right? We have been going through the book of Genesis, and uh, it has been a phenomenal study as we have been spending time looking at some of life's biggest questions, because right now we are dealing in a world that is asking a lot of these questions and coming to a lot of different answers that aren't necessarily rooted in scripture, but these are important questions. Who, who are we? Why is there pain and suffering? What is the meaning of all this? Where do we come from? And learning to both look through a biblical lens. What does God's word say about all this? What is this whole, you know, story that is unfolding, you know, that we, we look at in terms of Messiah, Jesus? What are these promises? What is this all about? And, uh, and as we spent time in the book of Genesis, hopefully you began to see some of these questions answered about the problem of sin. Why do we see, you know, these things navigating in our relationships and in our world? What is this, um, what is this work of the gospel that we have in terms of the promise going back from the very beginning and the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent? Why is it, you know, that we look at Jesus as the fulfillment of some of these things? And we watched the promises of Abraham culminating all the way up to Joseph. And then as we were getting ready, you know, um, you know, for, for the story to expand into the Exodus, well, you have to tune in as we get ready to start Exodus a different time. But we're going to continue... Um, our, our, our study throughout God's word is Calvary Chapel. That's part of our heart, teaching book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We want you to understand both the Bible, you know, what was God saying to the people that he wrote it to, and how do those timeless truths also apply to our lives? How do these things help solve the things that we're dealing with as well as the things that are going on in the world around us? So as we look at this whole understanding of God's word, it really does. There's an, what we call an overarching meta-narrative. There's one particular story that God has been weaving from the beginning of the book where it says, in the beginning, God. It starts with God. There's a plan, there's a purpose, and you and I are all a part of that. And I think the more that we understand it, the more we can speak into some of those big questions that are going on in the world. And this overarching meta-narrative, there's a big theological word for you. You're like, you already lost me, Caleb. The overarching meta-narrative, what is that big picture? What is that scarlet thread that God has been weaving from the beginning of the book in Genesis all the way through the end of the book of Revelation? How does it reveal who he is? How does it reveal his plans for us? What is this gospel message and as we get ready to get into our book today that we're going to be starting, 1 Thessalonians, woo, right? We're going to get ready to jump here into the New Testament. And so this morning, um, we're going to do more of an overview, an introduction. One of the reasons that I chose 1 Thessalonians is we look at the, the list of Paul's letters, and there are many. This is his first letter that we would argue that he sent to one of the churches that he visited. So this gives us kind of this inside look at vintage Christianity. If Genesis, kind of that first book of helping us understand those key points that God is wanting us to understand about himself and us and the world. You know, as we get here into the New Testament and Paul's letters, what are some of these first principles that we need to understand about the church and God's power in and through the church, and God's promises in and to his people. How does the work of the gospel through the church transform us? How does it transform the city? Because these are all things that are on my heart for us as a church and for you. So let's take a moment and let's read as we look at from the book of Acts, kind of the inside scoop, the behind the scenes that the book of Acts tells us about how this church got started. So as we read God's word, let's stand. I'll read the odd, and then we can read the highlighted or even verses together. Let's start here in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. 
This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But to the other Jews were jealous, and so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. And they did not find them. They dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble over the whole world have come here now. And Jason has welcomed them into his house, and they are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. You guys can have a seat. Now, as we get here into this very first section, um, kind of looking at, as we, as we remember, we, we went through Acts another maybe two years before we did uh, Genesis. We went through the book of Acts. And we began to watch as God led Paul on this missionary journey. And we'll talk a little bit more in this detail in a minute. And this is his second missionary journey. He had already made his way along kind of that early part of Asia Minor. And there, as a God had given him a vision of a man of Macedonia, a door was open to Europe. And so here we see kind of this first move of the gospel going out into what you and I would consider modern day Europe, kind of that Greek empire in the world, that Greco-Roman empire. And so now as we look here at this kind of introduction to this letter, we see Paul and Silas making their way, laying out the message of the gospel to a place that had never heard it. Imagine that. I've had the privilege of visiting a number of places. When we were missionaries overseas, we got the chance to, to lead teams and go out in countries and things like that. And uh, it's hard to believe out here in Orange County that there would be places where people have never heard of Jesus. And when you get out into some of these different corners of the world and you realize that talking about Jesus, people are like, um, are you looking for a friend, a lost loved one? I mean, like the idea of Jesus is just so foreign to them. But there really does exist places still right now on the earth who have no idea about Jesus, no idea about the message of the gospel. But we also realize that scattered throughout the world is all of these different religions, all of these different ways in which people are trying to relate to God how they're trying to deal with some of the things that we saw in the book of Genesis. How do I deal with guilt and fear and shame and hiding? How do I deal with this idea that I have this innate longing to worship someone or something? And we see how all of the different false religions and ideas kind of fulfill that need. And so we see as Paul is going out learning, how do I communicate the message of the gospel to these places that God has prepared, these people that God is wanting to draw to himself. And so as we get into Thessalonica, this major city in, in, in that time in terms of Greece, what I want you to really pay attention to today, because this is part of what I'm hoping we get inspired, encouraged, to be thinking, what does God still want to do with the gospel in our city, in the cities that we have here in Orange County, because you'd be surprised, even though we think that Jesus, you know, must be so well known, the gospel must be so well understood right here where we live. And yet I've been in conversations in places where people just have no clue. But as we look today, we kind of see what happened in this story. And we look at the radical power that the gospel has to transform both people and a place. How did Paul in such a short amount of time, you know, be able to lay the foundation for a church that describes and the, the testimony of what God was doing there was going out throughout the whole world? What did, Paul, what did Paul speak? What happened? That's part of what I want us to get a glimpse of today because as we get into the actual letter itself, after Paul leaves when there's a riot and they get kicked out of the city, there's still questions 
people are like, hold on, what, what is this whole Jesus coming back thing? Did we miss it? Can we miss it? You know, is there, what's this rapture thing that you're talking about? So a number of the things that Paul writes in his letter are going to address some of the things that you and I are really excited to want to know. How does the gospel work and transform our lives? How do we prepare for Jesus' return? What does that look like? You know, is there, is, is there a rapture? Is, like, is Jesus coming back bodily here to earth? Some of those things are going to be written and described in the letters that we're going to be getting into in First and Second Thessalonians. Am I getting you excited just a little bit for this book? I'm hoping, because I'm excited. Let me read for you a little bit from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians just to give you an idea what they had experienced there during those three weeks that Paul was preaching. Paul says this as he's writing back to them. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. Notice what Paul is saying. That as he came in there with the message of the gospel, the power, not just of the words, but the power of the presence of the Holy Spirit to impact that community. It was evident. It was tangible. So much so that whatever God began to do there in Thessalonica, it said like a, like a bell, like dropping a pebble into a pond. It rippled out. The other cities were like, man, have you heard what's going on in Thessalonica? Like, did you, did you hear what's happening over there? Like the testimony of what God began to do in the lives of the people in Thessalonica who had never heard, it began to ring out. It says, from you, the word of the Lord is sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from wrath to come. So we can see both the impact that the message of the gospel began to have like you saw people turning from their worship of these pagan gods and these pagan temples that had been, been going on for centuries. And every part of their life revolved around that. And we'll get into that as we dig a little bit deeper. But it says something about the message caused them to want to turn to God from the idols. And then we get a little insight into what he was talking about. The message that God became a man died on a cross and rose again, something about that spoke to them that caused them to look at their worship of some of these other gods, the, the Dionysuses and some of the other ways in which they experienced worship and thought, maybe this is the truth. And when you and I begin to think about what Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. How well do I both know it? How well do I live it? Do I even share it? Is it something that I'm like, people don't want to hear that. And then you look at what God is doing in this city and you go, wow, is there anything more important for me to be talking about? So let me just give you a map, help you locate yourself geographically. And so when we go back to Paul's second missionary journey, just track with me because I want you to understand just a little bit of the context because as God did great things through Paul and Barnabas in their first missionary journey, and even as they traveled about, they experienced what it's like to try to communicate the gospel in pagan cities. So much so that they were like, it's Zeus and it's Hermes. Like they looked and had this idea of God that was so ingrained. They're like, the gods are among us. You know, here's, here's Paul and Barnabas. And they're like, no, 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 don't go there. Let me tell you about who we're talking about. But as they wanted to go back and say, hey, let's go back and let's share with people. Let's go back and kind of water those seeds that were planted. Let's make sure they're okay. So Paul and Barnabas had this idea to go back on, a, on another missionary journey. They had come back to report, shared all that God was doing to the Gentiles because there was a lot of confusion, you know, about the idea of Gentiles coming to faith. How could God be saving those people? That was a big question, even in the early church. And they began to describe how the work of the Holy Spirit was doing, um, manifesting himself even in them. 
And so now they get ready to go on this trip and something happens. You know, Paul and Barnabas, as they were preparing to go out, got in a disagreement. And they got in a disagreement over um, their assistant, John Mark, young missionary, who on the first missionary journey, um, something happens where he's like, I'm out of here. I'm done. Guys, serving Jesus is hard. Serving Jesus on the mission field is hard. And for Paul, it was like, man, if you, if you give up, you know, you're not going to join with this. You're going you're gonna to take off. That I'm, hey, no second chances. I mean, Paul was kind of this, like, when it came to that idea of ministry, he was pretty like, nope, I ain't taking John Mark again. You know, and, and you guys have had that coach before, right? Like, you're done. Barnabas, on the other hand, you know, Barnabas had this thought that, hey, you know, Mark maybe dropped the ball, but I don't think God's done with him. And I'm so grateful that there are Barnabases in ministry, right? That we're not always defined by our worst moments where we don't get it right. And I'm grateful that God uses a John Mark, right? You're like, what's his testimony? You guys ever read the gospel of Mark? Thank God Barnabas said God's not done with Mark, right? And so we watch as Barnabas says, no, nah, you know what? I think, I think God's still going to work in Mark. And so much so that they're kind of in this disagreement. They decide to what? Part ways. And that was hard for Paul because Barnabas was a mentor, Barnabas was someone that had helped nurture and even cultivate Paul's faith. And so to see kind of the split at the beginning of ministry must have been a very difficult time to be thinking about. Let's expand the work that God's going to do. And it begins with heartbreak. Now, like most ministry adventures, for those of us who've done ministry for a while and tried different things, you go out through this relational challenge and then you're like, hey, I know what we're going to do, guys. All right, let's go. Let's pray. We're going to go east. And it's like, let's see God open up the door. We're going to bring the gospel over here. And then it says in the spirit, what? Forbade them. They got to no. Okay, let's do this. Let's go north. And the spirit says, no. Right? Like you're, you're all excited to do this ministry. And Paul first goes through this, this kind of division in this relational. And then second, it's like, okay, we're seeking the Lord. God's going to lead us. And then closed door. And then closed door. You know what happens the next time Paul's like, hey, I think we're going to go do this. I'm like, sure, Paul. Right. Yeah. You're hearing from the Lord. I mean, can you imagine the other people alongside with Paul thinking, I don't know if you're really hearing from the Lord anymore. You know, I mean, you don't have Barnabas. Like, what's going on, Paul? Why all these closed doors? But see, that's not what happened. And we see that God was leading even in the closed doors. Why? Because as, as we begin to read through the book of Acts and we read about this vision of the man of Macedonia, that there in across the sea, in this whole Greco-Roman empire where they had a historical, right, aspect of their religious pantheon and their culture and all of that, God said, Paul, you're going to go over there. There are people there who need to hear the gospel. And so Paul has a vision of a man in Macedonia. I'm not sure he actually found the man. He comes across a woman, Lydia. Which, imagine if Paul said, I had a vision of a woman in, 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 you know, Macedonia. They're like, really? Okay, yeah, there you go. But you see, God gives him this vision of which they say, okay, let's pray. And we're going to walk in obedience. And they go, and as they're seeking the Lord, here opens up the door. And that's in the book of Acts where we get the church to Philippi. And we watch as they begin to make their way over there. And Paul encourages both obedience and opposition. As the work of the, Lord, uh, the, the gospel begins to go out, they get thrown in prison. And they encounter this whole situation of being thrown in prison for the work of the gospel. And then God begins to work even in the life of that prison guard. There's an earthquake. You know, the prison guard wants to commit suicide. Paul's like, don't. And then we watch as that guy, his household gets saved. A woman, Lydia, and her household gets saved. A church gets planted. And we begin to watch God do this radical thing on this trip. And that's only step one. As we look at what happens from Philippi, this is where our story picks up. So we're beginning in Thessalonica, which is really step two, as Paul is beginning on his ministry across the ocean. He's already had all of this chaos and stuff ensue in Philippi, and now we're moving into Thessalonica. And let me just say this, for those of you guys who are navigating ministry, those of you guys who are navigating, stepping into ministry, and sometimes you're thinking, but I feel so overwhelmed. I've got all these things going on in my life. 
I feel like I'm wrestling emotionally, relationally. I feel like I'm, 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 I'm kind of at my worst. I'm running on empty. And let me say this to all those who are navigating. Sometimes when we are at our worst, God brings out our what? Yeah. We talked about this just a few weeks ago with Pastor Brian where we were navigating just kind of that inverted promises of scripture. In my weakness, he is strong. And we watch as all of these different things kind of ensue as God is getting ready to open up all of this, this radical door to Europe. And we see all the challenges that Paul is encountering. Imagine if he would have been like, well, let's wait till the time is right. And anybody who's ever had a... Um, Anybody's ever had like this desire, whether you're opening a business or like, hey, I'm going to go launch on the mission field, which for 10 years we did. And we were training up, encouraging, equipping missionaries. And some people are like, I'm waiting for the right time. Let me just say this. The perfect time to share the gospel is what? Now. When you look at this process, things were happening relationally in Paul's ministry. Doors seemed to be closing, challenges, all of these different obstacles. God was just using those obstacles to create opportunities to move Paul into the place that he wanted him. Had Paul been looking at this and said, you know what, maybe this just isn't the time for another missionary journey. Let's just hit pause. But in reality, as we begin to look and say, okay, today... What is God doing in my life? When Paul was in prison, he says, I'm chained to a prisoner. You're going to hear the gospel. And then when the opportunity opens up and the doors are open, I'm going to keep moving forward. Today, the perfect time to share the gospel is now. I guarantee you, your life is filled with challenges and obstacles that some of you are like, I will get to sharing the gospel at work when things just kind of settle down. I'll start sharing the gospel with my, with my family when this situation just kind of like, we need that to ease up a little bit. And we have all of these different things that we're waiting for to change before we begin to take advantage of the opportunity to say, what if today is the day that God is wanting to bring the gospel into that person's life? And as we watch Paul's ministry, man, closed door after closed door after challenge after difficulty, and you watch Paul keep moving forward. That's how the work that God began to do in Thessalonica started. It started in weakness. It started in difficulty. It started in chaos. I remember um, one of our last outreaches there in Budapest when we were out there in the city and we would, um, you know, do street evangelism. We'd do some skits and things like that. And we would uh, find that people would kind of want to watch and uh, they would engage with us. And then typically after we would do the, uh, a skit or something like that, that the, the, the crowd would engage in, then we would have a, a team that would be kind of waiting for them to leave. And we'd ask, what did you think about that? What did you, what did you see? And um, even in the 10 years that we were there, I struggled with the language. It was never, Hungarian is like the second, we, we say it's the language of heaven. It takes an eternity to learn. So, but my kids, total opposite. My kids grew up, you know, in Hungarian schools, they were fluent, et cetera. So when they went out for outreach with us, guess what they become? Translators. And uh, I remember my son, he was nine, 10 years old, if that. And uh, as we were, as we were thinking about, hey, you're going to come with me. And you're looking at your nine-year-old and he's like, dad, you know, like, I don't want to do this. And, uh, but in those moments where you're thinking, okay, but I don't have another translator. Hey, I need you to translate for me. And there's a guy that's sitting over on the side, looks like he's had one too many, just kind of had a rough, you know, maybe go of things, kind of head buried down. And you can just tell, you, you can observe when, when God's placed you somewhere and you're thinking, hey, we're here to share the gospel. You know, it's kind of like the paramedic. You can just kind of see where people are carrying that weight, that pain, that difficulty. You're like, hey, I'm just drawn to talk to that guy. Not a situation I would normally bring my son into though, right? But I'm like, I got no translators. Son, you're coming with me. And there, as, um, as I began to talk to this guy, and I'm looking at my son, and I'm like, hey, I'm going to talk. You, you translate. Okay, yes, Dad. And, uh, and he begins to, to translate for me. And as I'm talking to this guy, a little bit about his story, and then a little bit about my testimony. Guys, it's nerve-wracking when you're sharing your testimony through your kid, because he's, like, talking and looking at you like you did what, Dad? You know? But as you're beginning to communicate the gospel, and I could tell this guy, you know, would have been a little put off by me. But for some reason, a young child at, at nine years old just seemed to like bring all his defenses down. 
And to have a child describing the idea, like one of the verses that was transformative in my life that brought me back to the gospel is this idea for God knows the plans that he has for you, plans for good and not of evil. And I was on the run as a prodigal. I was done with God and I thought God was done with me. And when God began to call me back like a parent of a prodigal child, and I'm describing this through my child, I watch as this guy's eyes just like, here comes the waterworks. And there, as I was describing the message of the father's love, through the eyes and the hands of a child, all this guy's defenses broke down. And then we watched this. I'm praying for him, and he's praying. Get this little hand, praying for this guy, right? But it's amazing, right, that the, the weakness, what you and I would consider weakness, like how's a nine-year-old going to communicate the gospel? And I'm thinking, how am I going to translate? But that was exactly what that guy needed in that moment. What you and I would consider weakness, like, oh, I don't have, like a stick in Moses' hands is just a what? It's a stick. But when God says, hey, pick that thing up and I'm going to use it, you know, to communicate, to show my power what, what looks like something weak in my hands. When we put it in God's hands, what is it? It's a tool that parts seeds. It's a tool that splits rocks. I mean, it's, it's really the tool that God's wanting to use. And so again, you might feel weak, you might be weak, you might be in a situation that's not optimal, and that's how this church started. That's how this outreach started. It started with all kinds of chaos and challenges, but it's often in those moments of God using our weakness to point people to his strength. So Thessalonica, here's what you need to know. Thessalonica was the capital of its district. It was a key city in that empire going back to even earning um, certain status in terms of a free city. It had its ability to kind of manage its own uh, economy. It was, a, it was a thriving hub. It had the largest population in the region because if you go back to the map, it had the sea right there. It was a port city. And so for Thessalonica, they were kind of a, a crown jewel, if you will, in that empire. So much so that when it came to like the worship of the Caesar in terms of the Roman Empire, these guys were passionate about making sure that everything was happening in order in terms of we honor Caesar, we have the, the, the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods, like this, you know, we are the, the pinnacle. We are a major city in terms of representing Greek culture and Roman life. So when you think about us picking a city right now, we're like, hey, let's pray. Let's think about where God wants to go. And uh, people are like, I think the Lord was calling me to Hawaii, right? I remember in the school of ministry with Pastor Chuck, he's like, all right, guys, <laughs> you know, enough people in Hawaii. But like when we pray about asking God, where would you send me? You know, Saudi Arabia is probably not on the top of your list, right? Uh, North Korea, you're like, uh, somewhere else, Lord, right? Jonah. But I mean, let's think about it locally. Vegas. You know, you think about going into LA, you think about going into New York. I mean, think about your major city centers, that are rooted in a, a culture that seems to be the antithesis of the gospel. And what I really want you to pay attention, what I want you to see in terms of not just Paul's ministry vision, but kind of the thrust of the spirit behind Paul's ministry vision. It's like, we're going to knock on the devil's doorstep. Give me the biggest city. Give me the biggest stronghold. Because think about what happens if the gospel begins to take root there. Do you understand why now when he said, hey, what's happening in Thessalonica is starting to make its way throughout the rest of the world. This was a major city center. This was a hub. But here's the thing. Thessalonica needed what? Jesus. All of those people living, worshiping their pantheon of the gods, separate from the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he did. They have no concept. There's no internet. There's no way for them to know what happened over there in this small little slice of land in terms of Jerusalem and on a hill called Calvary. And this one who declared himself the way, the truth, and the life, they'd have no information about that, which is why when Jesus was ascending into heaven, he said, go into all the world, the nations, the, the, the ethnos, the people groups, the, time, the, the, the languages, that was part. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to what? The ends of the earth. So this is God's heart from the beginning. Thessalonica needed Jesus. Now, for those of you guys who've done your studies in Greco-Roman culture, I'm not going to get into this today, but I'll touch base on this a little bit as we do get into the study of this book. But they had, right, they had their own understanding of the worship of the gods. 
They were polytheists, right? They had a pantheon, a hierarchy of gods at the top of that, Zeus. And they had their other gods that, that functioned in different aspects of life. You know, when you had to navigate your particular trade, it was connected to a certain god. You had your festivals that were connected to the fields and, and you wanted to have a child. Well, let's, hey, let's, let's make sure that we're pouring out a libation and we're honoring this god. They had gods that, that were involved in every aspect of life. And so if you were involved as an electrician, if you were some tent maker, then your guild, you know, like your union, we have unions today, right? And that concept of like, if you didn't worship, if that, um, if that aspect of uh, however it is that they honor and worship their gods to be a part of that union, then you get kicked out of the what? Still kind of like that today, isn't it? But as you, and I don't want to spend too much time looking at these different gods. But as you study history and all the different religions, you understand there's things behind this stuff where the enemy has his own counterfeit of how he un wants to undermine the work of the gospel. And these people in their worship, in their licentiousness, in the ways that the enemy would try to entrap them and enslave them to get them to worship these gods, we realize how important it is for us to be able to communicate the gospel in contrast to these gods. And if I were to break down both from looking at the, the historical like Sumerian and Babylonian aspect of the worship of their gods, you would kind of see it's just a repackaging of these things all the way up in the Greco-Roman time. And when we begin to look today and you begin to see how some of these gods are worshiped just by a different name, by fame, by, by sexual identity, like the reality is these same spirits, if you will, this same ideology is just as prevalent today and just as critical in our communication of the gospel. Notice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, second part, it says, and how they turn to God from what? Idols to serve the living and true God. Yeah, they probably had their little statues and all of that, but guys, it was so much more. And what is it about the gospel that caused them to say, you know what, I'm going to put that down. Even though every facet of my ability to live and work in the city and communicate with my family and pay homage to Caesar and all these different things, I'm willing to put all of that aside because of something you're telling me about this person over in Nazareth. Guys, don't underestimate when we learn to communicate the truth of the gospel, who Jesus is, Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, I will what? I will draw all men to myself. We get so worried about like not wanting to offend people. And again, I'm going to get into that in a minute in terms of being on the offense versus being offensive. But learning to communicate the gospel to the heart of where people are at, it begins to undermine. They begin to say, I'm going to put my idols down because I can see what it is that you're saying. Notice they turn to God from what? From idols. They saw that Jesus was what? Better. It's kind of what the book of Hebrews is all about. Now, when we think about how that manifests today, because that really is an important part of you praying into. We were starting to do that a little bit this morning at 915 as we were praying for service. We're thinking about how does some of those same ideas and ideologies permeate the life of a city the life of a community, the life of a country? Like, are there still idols and things that people worship? You know, there's a lot of different things that I could get into to help you understand, you know, idolatry. You think about the things that people are passionate about. I was joking with the, the team this morning as we were praying. It's like, I'm a huge sports fan, right? Right? And, and fan is short for fanatic, right? That's kind of how people get about their sports. You paint your face and show up super early and your whole life revolves around this thing that like you're either in a good mood or a bad mood if they win or they don't. And you might chuckle and I'm not saying that, okay, that's idolatry, but I want you to see how something can become so important, so significant in your life that it would have an impact on maybe your family, on your work, on your attitude, that you would be willing to give up finances and time, right? Where it's like, I'll make sacrifices for this that I won't make for this. And it's just, it's just a little insight that, man, we are created for worship and you're worshiping things even when you don't realize it. And so when we're able to look through that lens and think, are any of these same ideas and ideologies permeating my life? And then here becomes the second question that we're going to learn as we study the book of Thessalonians. Do we understand how to communicate the gospel to the head 
and the what? And the heart. Because we're learning to uproot idolatry, even our own life. You're like, man, we don't got any little trinkets and stuff like that. Guys, idolatry can take root in your head and your heart in so many different ways and learning to understand the gospel and how it goes down into those root things that it wants to dethrone that where Jesus alone is ruling and reigning in your heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And we have to learn what that looks like. That's gonna be part of what we're, we're getting into. I'm gonna show you a little clip. One of my favorite um, resources, tools. Um, there's a whole website called I Am Second. We're not going to have time to get into a testimony. I want to show you a clip of just an overview of different testimonies just to see if any of this resonates. I was angry at God. Why did you take it away from me? I remember just saying, whoever you are, I'm going to prove that you're not real. I was at the lowest point I'd ever been in my entire life. I have to make my body a certain way. I don't know how to process this. I don't know where to begin with this. I don't know how to deal with this. I was driven by hate. That night, I died inside. I just remember getting shot in my neck. No one could help me. I just hurt all the time. I'm a junkie. Jesus, please save me. I surrender all of this. I just felt this peace come over me. Like a weight that's taken off of you. He is enough. I'm second. I am second. I am second. I am second. I am second. Um, that's a good resource for being able to watch hundreds of testimonies of the famous to the infamous to people you would never have maybe heard of who are just sharing a truthful encounter about what happened when their, when their life, you know, became, um, when the gospel became real to them. How is it that they were able to navigate freedom from all kinds of different things, to find answers to some of life's most difficult questions, to come out of brokenness and darkness? And as you listen to each one of those stories, you're like, there's a part of you like, man, you're telling my story. And how important it is to be able to hear that how do I understand in a world that really does, like when we listen to what people are dealing with, these things don't satisfy. Pursuing the, the, the career, trying to find happiness and relationships, hoping that financial security or any of these other number of things are gonna finally satisfy. Getting some particular identity thing, like, oh man, that's where I'm gonna find this source of satisfaction. And as you hear people saying, man, I was there. And this is what it's like. And then I encountered the gospel and hearing that story, we go, man, how important that is. Are we able to do that? Are we able to communicate how Jesus is better than the lies? Then like the Bible tells us, there is a spirit of antichrist, not just like, I hate Jesus. That's how we often think about when it comes to this idea of antichrist. But the reality is the word is a pseudo Christ. When Paul was talking to the Galatians, he's like, man, you know, we started in the spirit, but we try to make it perfect in the flesh. We can start to twist the gospel. I was just yesterday, I was preparing my message. I get a knock at the door. I'm like, who is at my door, right? And here's these two guys dressed kind of nicely. And, uh, and my wife opens the door. She's like, hello. And, you know, and she's like, Caleb, this is for you. And, uh, and why? Because, you know, as, as, as they wanted to take a moment, they wanted to tell me all about how I could be one of Jehovah's Witnesses, right? And, uh, and again, here's the thing, guys. We are called to be fishers of men. And it's hard sometimes to go out and, like, figure out, hey, where do I go fish? Like, how do I? But, guys, when fish jump into the boat, that's a good, that's a good sign. Because they came to my door. And I'm like, hey, you know what? I'm going to listen. Tell me a little bit about what you're talking about. Tell me a little bit about this idea of the Bible and tell me a little bit about Jesus. And then as I start talking, they're like, you know a little bit about the Bible. I'm like, I do, you know, but, but my goal wasn't to like, I, I, I'm not going to try to wow you with how much more I know. I want to begin to get an inroad to the gospel because I want to make sure that you guys have heard somebody talk about Jesus because there's some ideas and, and ideologies that you have about Jesus that aren't true. And you need to understand the death and resurrection of Jesus. Guys, I was just meeting with our guy who does our campus ministry over at Cal State Fullerton. 
And as he does evangelism each day out there and they do prayer ministry, but he's telling me about the number of other people, you know, whether it's cults, whether it's the other people that are out there trying to communicate a message of whether it's hope or whether it's an idea of like, this is where you're going to find your answer and your satisfaction. Guys, there are a number of lies out there that aren't the gospel. There are so many different things that are competing for the head and the heart of people, your friends, your family, the people that you're, 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 you're communicating with. And you and I have, the man, I have been, my wife and I have been to like, I don't know, I lost count, maybe 60 countries around the world, different places. I have never not been in a remote village in a random place where I've not seen a guy on a bicycle with a little, with a little name tag. And I'm like, they're already here, right? Like you're looking at the Mormons and they're there and it, rather than be mad, it kind of convicts me. To be like, they're out here with the lie, and I've got the truth, and I kind of am just waiting, like, hey, man, the Laker game's getting ready to start, right? Like, don't interrupt me. But I mean, but I mean, in reality, right? Like, there are, there are people working overtime. Now, granted, they're doing that to earn their salvation and all the rest of these things, but we have the truth, and there is a lie out there, and we have to be asking ourselves, what are we doing? Now, there's a difference between being on offense and being offensive. Jesus said, and I will build my church, and what? And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We get nervous looking at our world and the different things that are going on out there. We get overwhelmed. But here's what Jesus said. And I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Most people have this idea of like the church having these like these gates and like the enemy's trying to get in and it can't get in. Okay, you've got the wrong idea. That's not how the text is actually being communicated. It says, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Gates aren't on offense, right? Right, so what's happening is he's talking about the power of the gospel, what Peter had just communicated. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. He said, flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you, but my father in heaven, he says, hey, on this, I will build my church. This revelation of who Jesus is and the what? And the gates of hell, he's standing right there at Peneus, at where they would worship the god Pan, one of these huge temple areas where they believe was kind of a portal to the underground, you know, where this god that was, you know, kind of like you and I would think of in relationship to Satan, like this is where he's worshipped, and Jesus is standing, I love how his version of spiritual warfare, I'm going to stand in this place and say, this is where I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not be able to what? Prevail. When we bring the message of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, it's these false ideologies that won't be able to what? Won't be able to withstand the power, the truth of the gospel. We need to learn how to be on offense, right? In other words, we're reaching out. We're, we're prioritizing, say, people matter to Jesus. These people don't know. What am I doing about that? How will they know, as Paul says, unless somebody what? Tells them. Some of you guys are going like, where do I start? Well, for Paul, we see a little bit of that in this, in this message. Um, we were finishing our vacation the other week. We were up in Yosemite back this summer. And as we finished out, my wife had told me about this event. Anybody hear about California will be saved? I mean, we do Harvest Crusade, but there is a, a group of young people, right, who've just got a very similar heart, passion, like this idea of California will be saved. They're in their early 20s, right? They're just like, man, how do we get California saved? And they've been doing, like at the beach, they've been doing it different places, like, like little mini revivals, worship, gospel, all that kind of stuff. Well, this one, they held on Hollywood Boulevard. It was the first time someone had gotten like permission and permits, like right there, like in front of Grom's Chinese theater, you know, like we're talking the heart of enemy territory. And so they put, you know, a whole stage and worship and outreach and we rolled in and I went, whoa, because what happened was not that, let me tell you why you guys are all wrong and you're going to hell. What they did was they began to create space to worship Jesus for who he is and what he did. And then... They began to share the message of the gospel. And I watched as all kinds of interesting people stopped and listened and moved forward. And as I watched my kids and us praying and engaging, and then I saw people responding to the message of the gospel who didn't plan to hear the message of Jesus that day. This was a picture as we were just kind of getting ready to start the, the worship time there. And there were hundreds of hundreds of people gathered. Let me show you a clip here.
our God reigns. Like, that was the message. They were declaring the truth of who Jesus is and what he had done. And that worship and the declaration of the gospel, you watched. There wasn't anger. There wasn't people protesting. They were literally just like, what's going on here? And that's, that's what I love to see. We're going to go stand and take back the enemy's ground by what? By declaring the truth and showing the truth. And a bunch of Christians that love Jesus and love people were just there worshiping and lives were transformed in that moment. Love it. That was just a couple months ago. They're doing another one coming up here at the end of October. But guys, like, it's like Halloween. Have we just given up? <laughs> like, well, like, oh, it's just the devil's day. We'll do it the next day. Like, am I looking and how these things create an opportunity for me to be able to point people back to, that's what I mean by terms of being on offense without being offensive. So for Paul, part of where he started, it says, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue. Why? Because Paul's whole background was a Jew who was a Pharisee who was trained. And for him, this revelation of encountering Jesus and realizing he is the promised Messiah. He is the one that they were waiting for and he could prove it from scripture. So for him, he started in his comfort zone. I'm going to go into a synagogue because these people have the message and the scriptures. And I'm going to go to a synagogue in Thessalonica and I'm going to start there. And for three weeks, he began to communicate, teaching from the scriptures, the message of you've been waiting for Messiah. Let me tell you who he is. And so I think in terms of us, because some of you guys are walking out here and going, Caleb, where do I start? Start with your story. What does the book of Revelation tell us in verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 11? And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, of your testimony. Your story about your encounter of who Jesus is. Remember, these Thessalonians had never heard about Jesus. They got their own pantheon. They got their own gods. Tell me about your God. Could you answer that question? Could you give uh, a reason, as Peter says, for the hope that lies within you? Now, some of you struggle when I say that, especially when we were teaching at a Bible college. You, you get Christians who sometimes say, well, I don't have a what? I don't have a story. Guys, there's power in your testimony. Whether you're like me and we're a prodigal, that God had a snatch out of the fire, and my life was transformed radically considering the alternative, but some of you guys who maybe generationally have grown up in a Christian home and you're thinking, I don't, I don't have a story. I didn't go to prison. I didn't do drugs. I didn't get caught out of immorality. And some of you think you need to go get a story. Pause. Hold on. <laughs> that is not the answer to that question. Um, I saw this clip. I sent it to my wife the other day as a, as a Bible teacher. And uh, let me just share it real quick. It's only about 30 seconds. If you grew up in a Christian home, listen up. I know a lot of us, we start off our testimonies, we're like, I was raised in a Christian home, and we're just like, ugh. It's like the most boring way to start a testimony ever. Y'all don't understand the power behind that. The fact that you were raised in a Christian home is evidence of the generational faithfulness of God. Like when you look at genealogies in the Bible, and it was like, the Lord is faithful to so-and-so, and then so-and-so, and then so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so. That is about the generational faithfulness of God long before they ever stepped onto the earth. So the fact that you were raised in a Christian home, that you were able to receive the gospel at six, it's not about you. It's not about all the sins that you were doing at five. It's about the Lord knew you before the earth was formed. And he saved your parents, your grandparents, their parents, their parents, so that you wouldn't be able to grow up in a place and hear the gospel. It's a powerful testimony to say that you were growing up in a Christian home. God gave you this story for a reason. Isn't that true? Guys, I do a lot of work with the school district. I do a lot of work with kids. And there are a lot of kids that would wish pray desperately that they grew up in a home where someone told them about Jesus, where their parents lived out their faith, where they experienced being able to come to a church like this and, and partner. Their heart breaks when I just show a little bit of like, hey, God's love, give somebody a hug, give them a high five. It's the same reason I coach. There are kids that have never experienced, never heard, never seen the love of God through a family. And if your family is giving you that, that is a testimony of the gospel. And it needs to be communicated. Not that I'm better than you, but that exists. That falling in love with Jesus and God's work in and through your family has an impact. Now, as we look at sharing our story, the other thing that we need to learn that Paul did is wasn't just sharing his story. It was sharing capital H, his story. Because ultimately, it's about that truth. 
who Jesus is and what he did, that's what he was communicating. It said that they, they shared the word of the testimony, but they also shared about what? The blood of the lamb. They need to have the answer to those critical questions that only comes from what? The word of God. We need to know the word of God to be able to communicate the word of God. That's why you're here today. I know that. And the Bible says the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of the soul and the spirit of the joints and the marrow. It is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Guys, it's like being a pharmacist. The very things that people are dealing with, we're able to communicate, taking from the word of God and speak that truth right into people's lives and hearts, dealing with the most intimate, personal, difficult things that are going on right now in their lives. And you've got the answer in the Bible. It's living and active. It's powerful. It goes down to those very deep, difficult questions as people wrestle with identity and their soul and that kind of stuff. Guys, we've been given that message. It says, and he reasoned with them through the what? Through the scriptures. We can tell our story, but we need to tell what? His story. Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected. Why is that important? People need to understand forgiveness. They're longing for it. They need to understand this idea of transformation, being able to be renewed, being able to be a new creation, right? They need to understand this idea of turning away from sin and turning to him. That's all being communicated in the word of God. It's not my word. It's not about getting them to vote a particular way. It's about getting them to understand the truth of who Jesus is and what he did. For us, just as we learned throughout kind of our study in the book of Genesis, and we'll see here, it's about understanding a promise. God made a promise. The seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. He would send one that would reconcile the dragon slayer. Man, that's Jesus. And there's prophecy where the Bible talks about things before it happens and it's been fulfilled. I can communicate from the Bible that the Bible is the word of God. The Bible stands on its own. Like, you don't have to be ashamed of the Bible. And then we begin to look at the person of Jesus. Man, you get people looking, talking about Jesus. Let them wrestle with that. And you watch as that begins to transform people's lives. Guys, let me bring it down to this. As we've been studying about Thessalonica and understanding their whole worship of all of these different gods and seeing this major city center and seeing just the proliferation of all of these different things, Paul knew, God knew that Thessalonica needed Jesus. And you're gonna be all excited. We're like, man, Thessalonica like got rocked with the gospel and God did this work. We're gonna get into that every week. But here's what I want you to take away for today. What does it say on the screen? But Fullerton needs Jesus. As much as God did this work in Thessalonica, guys, there's a work that God wants to do right here in our city. I told you Thessalonica was a major city center. You know that in um, Orange County, Fullerton is number six in terms of population out of about 30 plus cities in Orange County, about 140,000 people here in Fullerton. And we can begin to look at the college campuses. We can look at the high school campuses. We can look at the retirement communities, but there are a number of places right now that are in desperate need of the gospel. Now, you want to take it a step further. I said Fullerton is number six in Orange County, but let me just zoom out a little bit. That Orange County is number six in terms of population centers in the United States. In terms of if we listed counties in the whole United States and said, what are the largest counties by population? Orange County is number six at about 3.18 million people. You're like, okay, that's pretty cool, Caleb. Let me take it one step further. Let's zoom out a little further. Let's look at all of those counties. The most populous counties in America, LA is number one at 10 million. I told you we're number six. Number five is San Diego. Riverside and San Bernardino. Uh, Riverside is number 10. San Bernardino drops down about 14. Let me just put it this way. In a two-hour radius, 18.9 million people live here. That's half of the population in, uh, in, of California. And that's also the largest concentration of people in the United States live in a two-hour circle of you. You're like, I know when I drive the freeway. But when you wonder why there is a battleground right now for the hearts and minds of people here in Orange County, it's because you live in the largest per capita place of the image of God in terms of people per square inch right here where you live. And so when you wonder why the enemy's working overtime for marriages and for what happens in our schools and what's happening on the street corners and what's going on in the, the, the different things in our city, guys, you're living in the heart of the battleground. And when we think about the Jesus people movement, why when something happens here, it has a ripple effect around. Remember what I said? In Thessalonica, when God began to do a work there, what happened? It began to ring out throughout the rest of the world. Guys, would to God that we would begin to pray that what God does here in Fullerton, remember, it wasn't a mega church 
It was Paul with his ragtag group of guys coming off a whole broken, difficult, struggling time over in their own life and ministry. And God used that to be the catalyst. So don't underestimate how big our church needs to be to have a big impact in the work that God is doing. We're one church in the big C church, but we are praying and partnering in the same mission. And that should be our heart. Notice from you, the word of the Lord is sounded forth not only in Macedonia, but in every place. Don't underestimate what God can do right here in Orange County, in LA County. God can do a lot with a little. That is a biblical principle we see throughout scripture. Three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them through scriptures, 21 days. Paul is in Thessalonica 21 days, and that's the testimony. They turned from idols to God, that the message of what God began to do began to ring out throughout the world. You're like, man, what did Paul talk about? Guys, we'll tune in over the next couple of weeks because that's what we're going to be getting into, that the word of God would be so powerful and transformative that God could begin to radically alter that world in Greece through what he was doing in Thessalonica. One of the titles that we'll use, Thessalonians, a future hope for today. Paul gets in to some of these things. He doesn't say, hey, man, you need to get to like some, you got to go get a degree and then I'm going to tell you all about the rapture and Jesus coming back. Like it was one of the, the new beginner things that he talked about. Like, whoa, he was talking about this stuff. Yeah, that's the kind of stuff that we want to be communicating when we're sharing the gospel, who Jesus is, what he did and what he's going to do. Causes people to realize, man, I got to make the most of the time today. Romans chapter one, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ is that a power of God to salvation for what? For everyone who believes, for the Jew first and the Greek. Guys, we have a responsibility. Every tongue, tribe, and nation. We fast forward to the book of Revelation. That's what it describes as a glimpse of heaven. That means we got work to do. There are people that need to know. So let me ask you a question. Do you believe this? Do you believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation? Hopefully that's why you're here. Because God has begun that work in you. But let me say it this way then. Let me ask you the next question. If you believe this, do you believe this for your family? Like, do you believe that the power of the gospel, I know some of your families are struggling with very difficult things right now. You got kids, you got, you got people navigating marriage stuff and identity stuff, all that kind of stuff is going on. But do you believe that what they need is an encounter with Jesus and the power of the gospel through his church, like through believers, loving, discipling, bringing that transforming message. And not just that, but do you believe that the answer for our community, the answer for our city is the gospel. This is what we need to be praying. And again, it's what God did in Thessalonica. And I'm praying, guys, that's what God does right here in and through us in Fullerton. Amen? Let's take a moment and let's pray. Jesus, as we begin navigating our journey through this book, we pray, Lord, that it would inspire us, encourage us, Lord, to, to believe that the gospel is as relevant today for the things that our friends, our family, our community is dealing with. Lord, would you help us to realize that even the things that we are wrestling with, that the message of the gospel, the truth of who you are, God become human flesh, dying on a cross for us, resurrecting, that that can begin to transform all the way down into our heart and our minds. I would pray right now for anybody this morning who's needing to start there who's realizing that maybe they're not at a place, maybe the reason they can't share the gospel is because they're wrestling with it themselves. I would pray for anybody here this morning. If that's you, if Jesus has been knocking on the door of your heart, if you realize, hey, today is the day that I need to get right with Jesus. I need that hope. I need that transformation. I have that longing and I need that, that peace of God because I'm at peace with God. If that's you today, would you just write where you're at? Just acknowledge it, heads are closed, eyes are bowed, just kind of lift your hand to him. It's not for me, it's just for you. It's a way for you to express the fact that you're saying, Jesus, I'm ready, amen. And so Jesus, we say, I need you. I wanna turn from the things that I've been depending on, the things that I have been looking to, and I want to look to you. You are the author and finisher of my faith. You are what I need. I ask that you would forgive my sin and you would bring freedom, 
that you would bring healing, that you would bring hope. Help me to live the life that you have called me to live. You can put your hand down. I wanna pray right now, maybe there's some of you that are looking at this whole Thessalonica thing and you're a little overwhelmed, you're feeling a little convicted, you're like, I don't know if I'm like Paul bringing this message of hope. Maybe I've kind of been keeping my light under a bushel. I feel a little scared when it comes to communicating these things. I don't wanna step on toes. And maybe like Peter, it's like, man, I feel like maybe I've even denied him at times. And what I wanna pray for you right now is I wanna just pray for that boldness, that power of the Holy Spirit that allowed Peter just day, weeks later to be able to stand and declare who Jesus is and what he did. If that's you, would you just kind of reach up your hand? You're asking to say, Lord, I need that power of your Holy Spirit so that I can be a light, I can be bold, I can be a witness, I can be a part of the solution. Amen, I see a lot of hands right now. And so Jesus, I would pray right now, Lord, that you would empower each of my brothers and sisters with the power of the Holy Spirit Empower them so that they can be a witness to the truth of the gospel, who Jesus is and what he has done and what he has done in their life. I pray, God, that you would begin to help your word just begin to come alive, that you would equip them and empower them with your eyes and your ears and your heart, Lord, to see and to be able to respond to those that are looking for an answer to the hope that lies within. God, would you fill our church with boldness? Would we be a church that is willing and ready and able to communicate the message of the gospel to a world that's in need. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. All right, you guys can stand.